I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. We've begun a series on lessons from Proverbs, a study in this very practical book. In our first sermon, we considered the inspired penmen of Proverbs and looked at Solomon's unparalleled wisdom. And then we've come to a the prologue of Proverbs, the first nine verses, which I will be reading. And we looked at the primary persons addressed in Proverbs, that is, the young and the naive. The practical purpose in Proverbs is to bring us to a, a right understanding, to receive the truth, to give prudence, as we shall see, and the precious promise that's offered in Proverbs that if we attend to these things, we will understand the Word of God and it will make us wise. And then we came last time to consider the pious principle essential to all true wisdom, and that is the fear of the Lord. Last time we considered what the fear of the Lord is. We looked at the fundamental elements that are essential to the fear of the Lord. That the fear of the Lord is grounded in reverence for the majesty of God. It is expressed in filial obedience to the revealed will of God. And finally, it produces a careful attention to pleasing God and a dread of offending Him. Please follow with me as I read Proverbs chapter 1, the first nine verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in understanding, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Now we're looking at something of, of a, an extended study of the fear of God, which I believe is the theme, among many themes, in the book of Proverbs. It is repeated many, many times in many, many ways. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then look over at chapter 9 and verse 10, where this same theme is picked up and expanded upon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Well, having briefly considered last time the definition of the fear of the Lord, we'll be coming back to this time and time again in our study. This morning I wish to begin considering the privileges that belong to those who fear the Lord. I have found and, and synthesized and summarized, and I, I find at least ten privileges that belong to those who fear the Lord. We're going to, God willing, consider six of them this morning and four next time. The Bible teaches that God withholds no good thing to those who walk uprightly. There are treasures 
found in the Word of God that are there for us to thrust our hands in, to fill our pockets with these promises and principles and proverbs and and precepts, these things God intends for our blessing. The Bible teaches that no person is ever the loser for walking in the fear of God. Indeed, God promises rich blessings upon those who fear Him. And this morning and next Lord's Day morning, we're going to consider what some of those key benefits are. And the first one that I wish to point our attention to this morning is this, that those who fear the Lord enjoy God's abounding, unfailing, fatherly compassion and covenant love. Now, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? You, if you fear the Lord, you enjoy His abounding, unfailing, fatherly compassion and covenant love. The fear of God is the work of the Spirit of God in all of the people of God. When God saves us, He sends His Spirit into our hearts. And when He sends His Spirit into our hearts, He replaces our cringing fear of Him as our judge with a filial fear of Him as our Heavenly Father. If you're a child and you have godly parents, you desire to please them. You don't want to offend them. You have a proper fear a respect, we might even say a reverence for them because they are your parents and God has given them authority over you within the home to model himself and to present his word to you that you might believe it and embrace it and live by it. So you don't have a cringing fear of your father You rather have a respectful and a reverential fear of Him. And we're going to look at this in a further, in a a future message. But this childlike spirit marks us as God's children. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you see, is the new birth right of all Christians. His presence makes us His people. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14 through verse 16. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You see, when we were outside of Christ... The thought of God and His righteous commands and what we deserve because of our violation of His commands works a spirit of slavery that leads to fear. We're always cringing, knowing that we've done wrong and one day we're going to have to pay the piper. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God's Spirit within us testifies within our spirit, to our spirit, that we are God's children. God gives us the spirit of childlike fear. And then he takes pleasure in us for displaying this spirit. Those who know the fear of the Lord look to him for further expressions of his gracious and kindness and covenant love. The psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 147 in verse 11. The Lord favors, or if you have a King James Version, the Lord takes pleasure in, in those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindness. 
You see, we who have God as our Heavenly Father continue to look to His hand for further blessings. We look to Him, indeed, for all things, do we not? In the same way that you children look to your earthly father for provision and protection, so do God's people look to, through Jesus Christ to our Heavenly Father for every provision and for protection. All that we need is found in Him. <clears throat> Spurgeon comments on this great blessing of reverent hope in the Lord, spoken of here in Psalm 147 and verse 11. He writes, As a father takes pleasure in his own children, so does the Lord solace himself in his own beloved ones, whose marks of the new birth are fear and hope. They fear, be, for they are sinners. They hope, for God is merciful. They fear Him, for He is great. They hope in Him, for He is good. Their fear sobers their hope. Their hope brightens their fear. God takes pleasure in them, both in their trembling and in their rejoicing. Is there not rich cause for praise, Spurgeon asks, in this special feature of the divine character? As men may be known by the nature of the things which give them pleasure, so is the Lord known by the blessed fact that He takes pleasure in the righteous, even though that righteousness is as yet in its initial stage of fear and hope. Indeed, it's the work of His grace in us, and we grow in that grace, or those graces of fear and hope, and you can't really separate one from the other. David was marked by this spirit of holy, hopeful, happy fear. He borrows glorious illustrations to speak of the expansiveness and tenderness of God's covenant love and compassion toward those who fear Him. Maybe you're thinking about it already, the 103rd Psalm. He speaks about the fear of the Lord and the great blessing that belongs to those who fear the Lord. Look at verse 11. <coughs> he speaks about its expansiveness. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, and that can't be measured. That new telescope is out there. It shows wonderful pictures of seemingly infinite space. We can't calculate its distance. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. Verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Now our Father's compassion is limited. His compassion, because He is almighty and infinite, it is illimitable. It, it knows no end. It has no bounds. His compassion. Verse 17. But the loving kindness of the Lord, notice it has no end is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. It's never going to wear out. It's never going to go away. It's not going to come to its end. No way can it diminish. It only extends forever and forever. From everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant, and who remember His precepts to do them. You see, the spirit of, of evangelical fear animates God's pilgrims as they traverse this life to glory. It's the powerful operating principle within us. It animates us. It moves us. Indeed, the fear of God is the atmosphere we breathe here by which we make our way there. First Peter 1 and verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear 
during the time of your stay upon earth. We're to live in the fear of God while we are here. So what privileges belong to those who fear the Lord? Well, first, those who fear the Lord enjoy His abounding, unfailing, fatherly compassion and covenant love. Secondly, those who fear the Lord enjoy the company of others who fear the Lord. We're not alone. We're not pilgrims walking by ourselves. Indeed, we're all headed together as a body of God's people to the celestial city. Psalm 119, verse 63. I am a companion of all those who fear thee and of those who keep thy precepts. You see, in David's day, there, there were Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Baptists and Pentecostals. There were, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. And among the Jews, there were the true Israel of God and those who were just circumcised in the flesh. But notice how David distinguishes here. He says, I am a companion of all those who fear thee and of those who keep thy precepts. You see, those who keep God's precepts are those who fear him. And David says, these are my brothers and my sisters. This is my family. I'm a companion. I enjoy company with this kind of people. You see, brethren, godly fear not only determines our conduct, it also decides our companions. For the God-fearing, the saints, are the excellent of the earth in whom is all their delight. There's a special kinship and brotherhood among those who fear God, whatever their denominational stripe is. They're all animated by the same holy fear of the same holy God. In fact, godly fear acts like a, a holy magnet, drawing serious-minded Christians together, sweetening their fellowship, cheering their hearts, and encouraging their obedience to God's commandments. Psalm 119, a couple of verses. First verse 74. May those who fear thee see me and be glad. May I live in such a way in fearing God, that others who fear God see me, and they're glad. Their hearts are cheered by my conduct, by my conversation, by the things that I live for, by the things I love, as well as the things that I hate. May they see me and be glad. Why? Because I wait for thy word. I'm one who is committed to hearing and heeding the word of God. <coughs> Verse 79. May those who fear thee turn to me, even those who know thy testimonies. May others who know and love the word of God, may they turn to me, even as I turn to them. Might we find holy comfort and consolation in each other's company. May we spur one another on to love and to good deeds, to use the language of the writer to the Hebrews. Like Jonathan and David, those who fear God draw strength from the Lord and from each other to plow together and to walk side by side to glory as Christian pilgrims. <clears throat> Haven't you found much strength and encouragement in godly brothers and sisters encouraging you to run in the way of God's commandments. When you're slowing down, your hands are hanging down, your knees are ready to buckle, and maybe you're down and seemingly for the count, and they come alongside and they lift you up. They play the part of a brother. They come alongside you and encourage you in the way. But there's a warning here too, implied, Brethren, let us not forget Solomon's primary audience. Young and naive professing Christians, especially those who are, haven't lived long in the Christian way, tried and tempted, sometimes failing, 
They haven't been inured to the hard things of the Christian life. They're easily led astray. Young and naive professing Christians especially need to establish strong heart bonds with godly Christians. It's imperative. Humanly speaking, it may be the difference between life and death. This they must do not only to encourage personal godliness, but also to guard themselves against an unholy association with and the unhealthy influence of those who have no fear of God before their eyes. We read about some of those in 2 Peter 2 this morning. Who lead you away from Christ. And give sanction to you fulfilling your lusts. All in the name of being a Christian, by the way. Proverbs 1 and verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Why? Well, Solomon tells us. They hate knowledge and do not choose the fear of the Lord. Verse 29. You see, one who fears God will also say, therefore, Psalm 119 verse 115. Depart from me. See, he's a companion to some, but he says to others, Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Don't lead me into disobedience. I can't have anything to do with you if you're going to turn me away from God and away from the path that leads to life. Now, brethren, admittedly, taking a decided stand for the Lord, for His truth and and with his people, it's going to cost you some friends. You ought to expect that. Maybe you've already experienced it. But the Bible teaches that better a few God-fearing friends than many carnal companions. Solomon says, Proverbs 8 and verse, 18 and verse 24, A man of many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And of course, that's the best of friends, ultimately, Jesus Christ, but all others that seek to serve Him. You're going to have to make choices in your life, if you fear God, between this person and that person. Who is going to be your bosom buddy? Who are you going to have as just acquaintances, and who are those that are going to be like your Jonathan if you're a David? Your friends will be your best help or they can be your worst hurt. Thirdly, those who fear the Lord may stand boldly for a righteous cause. Proverbs 14 and verse 26. <clears throat> In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And his children will have refuge. Now the Bible teaches that the righteous will be as bold as a lion. Now how can they be bold as a lion? Is this just fleshly self-aggrandizement, um, thinking that you're better than other people? No, no, our righteousness is in Jesus Christ, but the Spirit of Christ is in us, and the Spirit of Christ makes us bold. You see, those who are bold as a lion can afford to be courageous in the Lord. How is this? Well, a Christian with a blood-washed conscience fears no evil. Why? Because he fears God. Witness David before Goliath. Because he feared God, he feared not that Philistine. Witness Paul before his accusers. He feared no man because he feared God. You see, when a, man, when a man's cause is righteous, when his cause is God's cause, it, it matters not how powerful his enemies are or how many. The God-fearing man, woman, or child may say, 
with the psalmist, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 46, uh, 56, 4 and 118, 6. We see the emboldening power of holy fear among those who have publicly taken the very unpopular Lord's side in matters of life and morality. I speak especially against the pro-abortion and the pro-LGBT tsunami that's washing this country away in a flood. You want to be unpopular real quick? Say that you're pro-life. Say that you believe that God made men male and female, and he hasn't changed his blueprint. You see, these ones that stand against this immoral tsunami... These champions are as gracious as they are fearless. Why? Because they know, they know that they are standing for truth and for righteousness, for the Lord and for His cause. That puts sanctified steel in their backbone and opens their mouth in His praise and with His word. They fear no evil because God is with them. And notice further Solomon's assumption in our text. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The book of Proverbs says much about the relationship between parent and child, between the authority of the, of the parent and the submission of the child, between the father and mother and their influence, and how that influence impacts their children. God-fearing parents exert a gracious influence upon their children. You see, parent, your, your holy boldness in, in supporting righteousness is not lost upon your kids. They see these things. And by the grace of God, they absorb these things and they make them their own. You see, the heart cry of God-fearing parents is that their children will not only embrace these things of truth, but they will exceed them in running in the paths of righteousness for Christ's namesake. We want them to stand on our shoulders and see farther into the kingdom of God than we see. They want to be, we want them to be committed in areas where we have failed. We want to see them pick up the torch of truth and run with it. And if that's true of you, dear parents, the richest legacy you can leave your children is a living example of godly fear. Not a huge inheritance, but a legacy of godly fear. They can fritter the one away, the other will never fail them. How especially valuable your example may prove if these days continue to darken and the world become yet more openly hostile to Christ and treacherous to Christians. The hymn writer borrows images from church history to embolden those who sing that they too would become dauntless soldiers of the cross. A glorious band, the chosen few, on whom the Spirit came. Twelve valiant saints, their hope they knew, and mocked the, the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their necks the death to feel. Who follows in their train? A noble army, men and boys, the matron and the maid. Around the Savior's throne rejoice. In robes of light arrayed, they climbed the steep ascent of heaven 
through peril, toil, and pain. O God, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. Fourthly, those who fear the Lord find it a great preservative against sin. Those who fear the Lord don't flirt with sin. Proverbs 16, 6. (coughs) By the fear of the Lord, it's by this means, one keeps away from evil. And when we get to chapters 5, 6, and 7, in the young man putting on the full armor of God to not fall prey to the wiles of the strange woman, this is really going to come into play. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Brethren, the fear of the Lord makes us afraid of sinning. Where there is no fear of God, there will be no hesitance to sin. You see, when we're tempted to sin and we give way to sin, we basically said to the fear of the Lord, not right now. No, I want some room. I want, I want a day off. But a heart ruled by the fear of God carefully avoids all occasions to sin. If, if temptation is before it, it takes a bypath, goes a different direction. Even if it's more difficult, it might be costly. The continual prayer of one who walks in the fear of God is, Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Conversely, godly fear causes a Christian to desire to obey God's righteous commands. After giving Israel the Ten Commandments, we read in Exodus 20 and verse 20, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. You were quaking before. You heard the voice. You saw the lightning. You saw the fire. Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of Him may remain with you. Why? So that you may not sin. You see, carnal fear of God will make us run into the arms of sin. But an evangelical fear of God, knowing that He's testing us by putting us through trials, that will embolden us not to sin, but to run in the way of God's commandments. We cannot walk in the fear of God as long as we entertain slight views of sin. Worldly wisdom mocks at sin because it sneers at God's righteous commands. It calls evil good and good evil. As long as we proudly flirt with sin, we endanger both body and soul. So Solomon tells us, Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8. (coughs) Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Now, if we had time to to go to a couple of the Psalms, we would see how David, in the midst of his agony after he sinned, it racked his body with all kinds of pains. He had a bad conscience. He had troubles with his body. The fever heat was in his bones. But all of that could have been avoided if he had turned away. Brethren, here's the point. Beware of thinking too highly of yourself. You can't fight sin with the arm of the flesh. It'll fail you every time. You see, pride is the sworn enemy of godly fear. If you get cocky, you will get careless. And if you get careless... Be sure sooner or later you will fall. You see, the arm of the flesh is not only weak, it's treacherous. David learned this lesson the hard way. 
He was leering at a woman when he should have been leading his army. He found himself on the roof plotting when he should have been on his knees praying. Fearless, David led himself into temptation and delivered himself unto evil. We're reminded that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Brethren, have you not found this to be so in your own experience? Is David so much different than yours? Judging from our own failures, none of us are guilty of fearing the Lord too much. It's when we don't fear Him as we should, we fail. It's only the gracious hand of God that enables us to fear Him and then upholds us in that fear. One more observation. Hardly a month goes by that we don't hear of some high-profile Christian that make, has made shipwreck of his profession. Our brother intimated that this morning. Or we learn of a professing Christian we know that has fallen away. Now why? Why is this? How do we explain this biblically? Well, he or she toyed with evil rather than turning resolutely away from it. Didn't ask for the feet of a Joseph who left his cloak and ran as fast as he, his feet would take him in the other direction. No, he's like Samson. He lays his head on the lap of Delilah. and She has her unholy way with him. And he becomes shorn of his strength. Brethren, the bottom line is this. In these situations, there is just a failure to walk in the fear of the Lord. Fifthly, those who fear the Lord may be calm when life seems unfair. <clears throat> Let's face it. The Bible teaches it. Experience confirms it. Life in a fallen world isn't fair. Inequities abound. The wicked are often rewarded while the righteous are punished. Many Psalms wax eloquent on this point. But the Christian that openly fears God is comforted knowing that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, even when it seems that those very things are working against him. King Solomon beheld this perplexing fact of life in his day and reminds us that God is in control and works what seems against the God-fearing person for his good. Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, Still I know, I take this to the bank. This is the truth I stand on when I see these things going on, these kind of inequities. Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. They're not going to be the losers for fearing God. No, they may get passed over for a promotion. They may experience financial reversals. They may be abandoned by professed friends. The wicked may prosper. And you may wonder where your next meal is coming from. Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. Matthew Henry's observations on Solomon's words are choice, so I quote them in full. God's people are certainly a happy people, though they be oppressed. Note, first, it is the character of God's people that they fear God, have an awe of Him upon their hearts, and make conscience of their duty to Him, and this because they 
see his eye always upon them, and they know that it is their concern to approve themselves to him. When they lie at the mercy of proud oppressors, they fear God more than they fear them. They do not quarrel with, provi with the providence of God, but submit to it. Second, it is the happiness of all that fear God that in the worst of times it will be well for them. Their happiness in God's favor cannot be prejudiced, nor their communion with God interrupted by their troubles. They are in a good case, for they are kept in a good frame under their troubles, and in the end they shall have a blessed deliverance from and an abundant recompense for their troubles. And therefore, and he quotes this verse, Surely I know, I know it by the promise of God and the experience of all the saints that however it goes with others, it shall go well with them. And Henry adds this P.S., all is well that ends well. Brethren, if we fear God, we have nothing else to fear. God is with us. He will protect us no matter who may rise against us. He guides us with his eye upon us. Brethren, we may breathe easy. Proverbs 19 and verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. <coughs> or as the New King James puts it, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. Brethren, we may rest satisfied with our lot in life, content that all is well, because God is in control. We may, when life seems unfair, know that there is a good God who is working all of these things together for our good. Doesn't Paul promise us that goodness or that, that with godliness with contentment is great gain? How can we walk close to God and worry about His care? Read the 23rd Psalm. We may walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, for Thou art with me. He will protect us and satisfy us with everything we need as we walk in His fear. Oh, we may experience grievous trials, but God will allow nothing that will do us any real harm. We may experience providential evil, circumstantial evil, but not moral evil. God will never turn against us. He won't take His Spirit from us. He won't abandon us and leave us to the devices of the world that are dead set against Christ and His people. He won't do that. He's sworn in the blood of His Son not to do that. Consider God-fearing Job. He experienced trials we can hardly imagine. Well, why did these things happen to him? Well, the Lord only knows the exact answer to that question. But I suggest that his godly fear kept him from utterly collapsing under the strain of his affliction and being driven to unbelief by his doubts. You see, he learned things about God's character and his sovereign rule and gracious care that he couldn't have learned any other way than through the trial that God brought him through. We witness the calming and supporting influence of good King Hezekiah's godly fear when facing the threat of an imminent Assyrian invasion. How did he stand up during that trial? You could say, well, Lord, am I not serving you? Why have you amassed all of these enemies? So did the righteous king collapse in terror or give way to unbelief? No. 
Did he seek omens and worldly support? No. Did he go to witches and seek to know the future? No. Did he console himself with his regal authority, with his great wealth, or with any earthly blessing that he has? No. What stabilized Hezekiah when the ground was moving beneath his feet was his fear of the Lord. Or better yet, fear in the one whom he trusted for his salvation. And so Isaiah encouraged the God-fearing king, what we read in Isaiah 33 and verse 6. And he that is Jehovah shall be the stability of your times. Yes, you hear the sabers rattling outside the city walls. Don't you worry, King Hezekiah. The Lord shall be the stability of your times. Not just this moment, but of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Treasure the fear of the Lord. It will stand you in good stead in such oppressing and difficult times as these. And then finally, before we come to a couple of words of application, I appreciate your patience. Sixthly, those who fear the Lord are promised God's help and protection. Indeed, haven't we seen this all along? Psalm 115, verse 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You see, holy fear inspires hearty trust in the Almighty who shelters His people under His wings, supported by His unseen hand. We have unfailing supernatural resources supporting and defending us. Oh, that our eyes would be opened, like the servant of, of Elisha's eyes were opened, to see the angels encamped around them. Well, what do we have to be afraid of when we have the armies of heaven around us? What did the psalmist say? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. How precious is this promise to those who live in perilous times. Notice that the psalmist's exhortation to trust Jehovah immediately follows an expose, if we had time to look at Psalm 115, an expose of the folly of idolatry. You see, a real God is worthy of real fear, of hearty trust. Only He can protect, only He can provide. All other help is impossible because all other helpers are imaginary. The history of Israel is the history of a nation failing to learn the basic fact of the Christian life in that there is one God and He is the protector and provider of His people. Has not that been the history of the church and our own as well? Hezekiah learned when facing imminent danger from powerful idolaters that Jehovah is both real and reliable. He's ever-present and he's all-powerful. He could be trusted no matter how great the trial for protection and deliverance. He saw with his own eyes the promise of the psalmist, Psalm 34 and verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, how many times we've been rescued and we didn't even know it. Ah, the day will tell it. God will receive all the praise. Brethren, if we learn anything from what we have seen, let us be convinced that those who fear God have nothing else to fear. And we'll conclude our consideration of these benefits of fearing the Lord God willing next week. Just two concluding applications. Very briefly. First of all, you who live in the fear of the Lord, count your many blessings from the Lord. Are not these precious blessings? They belong to none but to us. 
No person is ever the loser for walking in the fear of God. He has blessings abounding. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. God delights to give precious gifts to his people. He withholds no good thing to those who walk in his fear. Secondly, you who don't fear the Lord, you not only miss these blessings, but are living in rebellion against the Lord, which will lead to his judgment when you die. See, those who do not receive Christ and enjoy his blessings, they have the curse of God resting upon them. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Indeed, Jesus said those things that have been done in the dark will be brought to light. Those things that were whispered will be shouted from the rooftops. We've been, perhaps, you sitting here, saying, how does this apply to me? Let me ask you, do you fear the Lord? Do you hope for His mercy? Do you relish His loving kindness? Do you desire to please Him in all things? Do you want to run as far away from sin as you can? Do you see your real need of a real Savior who has come to save all those who turn to Him and of none will He ever cast out? If you're weary and heavy laden, go to Him and you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Or Father, what a, a blessed thing it is to contemplate these privileges that belong to those in whose hearts you have placed your fear. We have all this in heaven beyond. We have your promised presence here and your glorious presence hereafter. Lord, help us to live in the atmosphere of your fear to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, to run in his commandments, to hate everything that he hates, to love everything that he loves, to hate sin, to love righteousness. Lord, by nature we don't do these things. We love sin and hate righteousness. Indeed, we find ourselves in the second chapter of Second Peter. We're those kind of people. We would deny the truth. We would run in the way of darkness. Lord, you've rescued many of us, and we pray, O oh God, you rescue all of us. Do good, we pray, unto Israel, and we pray that you would bring others into the kingdom of God and join them to your people, that we might be a happy company, fixing our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and marching in faith to him in glory. We ask this in his name. Amen.